Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... Welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the news, humor, and cultural survival podcast by, for, and about women and people of all genders who experience sexism. We talk a lot on this show about connection and barriers to connection and how even though we have more ways to be connected than ever, that that abundance gets in the way or somehow can cheapen our connections because it's so low stakes, Um, you know, particularly social media, texting, things like that. It requires so little effort that it can lose meaning in some cases. Well, today we're going to hear about a connection between two women that happened uh, about a hundred years ago that reveals a lot, both about how far we've come in our thinking about lesbian relationships and in some ways how far we have fallen or at least changed when it comes to how we nurture our relationships, how we communicate and how we connect. And so I'm very excited to um, have my guest Lizzie Ehrenhalt here. Welcome to the show, Lizzie. Thanks so much for having me, Adrian. It's great to be here. Yeah. So Lizzie is an editor and a public historian. She is the editor of the digital encyclopedia of Minnesota history called Minipedia. I am saying that right. You got it just right. Good. Uh, and your background is in archival and museum studies. Is that right? It's true. Yeah. I, I have a master's degree in archives and records management. And then at the same time as getting that degree, I got a certificate in museum studies. Oh, very cool. Um, and you went to Oberlin, is that I right? I did. Oh, I went to Grinnell. So oh, okay. um, lots of, lots of overlap between yeah. Ober- Oberlin and Grinnell um, applications and friendships um, I've discovered throughout the years. So uh, you are also the co-author, no, co-editor, mm-hmm. I guess, of this wonderful book that we're going to talk about today titled Precious and Adored. So I would love to hear you tell us a bit about the book and then we'll talk some more about kind of how you came across this story and why you wanted to tell it. Absolutely. Um, well, the the heart of the book is the relationship between these two women, uh, Rose Elizabeth Cleveland and Evangeline Mars Simpson Whipple. She married twice. Um, and uh, to create this book, uh, Tilly Lasky and I um, collected and annotated and transcribed, that came first actually, um, uh, a about 30 years worth of correspondence from Rose to Evangeline. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have Evangeline's letters to Rose. So it's a one-sided conversation, but still um, a really important one. So we uh, collected the letters. We wrote an introduction. um, We, uh, you know, did a lot of background reading. Obviously, we have a great bibliography that I'm very proud of. and uh, then we were lucky enough to get the book published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press. And it's going to be available for sale just later this month in late April. Oh, wonderful. OK, well, we'll make sure to put that uh, link in on the website. So for any, everyone should go get it. I have a copy of it. It's fabulous. So um, Evangeline and Rose, they um, were in love. Yes. For 30 Plus years, it sounds like. I would say that they were. Yes, they met in a in about 
1890, the winter of 1889 to 1890. Um, they definitely had, they spent a lot of time apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, that's good for uh, the record because that's when they create the letters is mm-hmm. when they're not living together. So oddly enough, we have more documentation of when they're apart than when they're together. Yeah. Um, but that's just the way correspondence goes. Um, and then they were together off and on, long periods apart, uh, until Rose's death from influenza in 1918, mm-hmm. at which point they were both living in Italy together. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that when I was looking through the book and that kind of stuck out to me um, when I was preparing to ask you questions about it was these were women of means. They were white women. Yes. Um, Rose was actually Grover Cleveland's sister. Yes, he had several sisters, but she was certainly one of them. Wow. She was for a short time uh, the official um, sort of White House hostess, the first lady really, because Grover Cleveland uh, had been unmarried when he entered his first term as president. So she took on that role. Then he got married and she was very happy to step aside and not be first lady anymore. Got it. So that's relevant for several reasons, but one of which is that there was this kind of idea of um, for, for women in romantic relationships during that time who were not wealthy could kind of use the pretense of living together to share resources Mm -hmm. Um, as a way to kind of legitimize their cohabitational situations. Mm -hmm. And they did not have that um, opportunity. Yeah, what you're describing is a Boston marriage. Boston marriage. I knew there was a name for that. Yeah, yeah. Coming from the Henry James novel, The Bostonians. Mm. Um, And uh, yeah, I would say they did not, Evangeline and Rose, that is, did not have a Boston marriage. They didn't have that um, pressing need to pool their resources their economic resources. Um, and in fact, for a lot of the time, they lived apart. So the Boston marriage is really about setting up a household together mm. to be independent women who are working and often, you know, working to make a living, to make ends meet. Um, Rose and Evangeline didn't have to do that. So I don't think Boston marriage is quite appropriate for their relationship. Yeah. And how else did class show up in in the letters in in the research that you did for the book? Yeah, it shows up everywhere. Um, it especially shows up in their discuss, uh, discussions of uh, domestic servants. Mm. That in the later years, I would say from about 1900 to 1909, that's just a constant topic of discussion. Um, you know, where they want to get together, but if they're going to go somewhere, they need to have servants following them to take care of all their basic needs. Right, it's of very course. awkward. As one does. Yeah, you can't just go on vacation. <laughs> I mean, they do often do that. If you're going to a fancy resort, then you're going to be okay. But, um, you know, when Evangeline travels to stay with Rose, she needs a maid um, and vice versa. So there's a lot of discussion about that. And it's really jarring um, to have that drop into these letters. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that's something I really encourage people to um, focus on when they read the letters, like read the letters through the lens of class and think about um, domestic service in the late Victorian and Edwardian periods. Um, And uh, there's been some great work done on that in relation to the servants of Virginia Woolf. Uh, There's a book called Mrs. Woolf and the Servants, which I recommend, uh, which really gets at the, irony that some of the women in this period who were so independent and feminist were really reliant on um, women who are less fortunate than they were to do all this stuff for them. Yeah. And especially when you're a 
you know, socialist type like Virginia Woolf, it's very awkward. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the same is true of Rosen Evangeline because um, I don't think they considered themselves socialists at all, um, but they really did believe in women's independence and um, they were independent uh, to a point, but not past the point of having um, maids and housekeepers and really just fleets of people to uh, attend to them. And so this relationship occurred during a time when letter writing was really one of the only ways people in different cities could communicate. So it wasn't unusual um, to write letters. But I think for us reading now, it's really remarkable how much time and how much intimacy went into this correspondence. I mean, the um, it, it is interesting, as you remarked, there's a lot of discussion of sort of day-to-day domestic um, affairs, but there's also just this tremendous emotion and passion. And, you know, the, these truly, many of them are love letters in, in the very, you know, mm-hmm. in the way that we think about love letters. And so as an archivist, I imagine you've read lots of letters between people. Um, <laughs> what stru- what struck yeah. you about these? Oh, um, the the amount of time that's covered that's mm-hmm. recorded um mm-hmm. uh when i first read the letters sitting in the library of the minnesota historical society i was reading the originals obviously um and i just read one after another and the years just tick by um relentlessly and you know people die and there are letters about that and just the inexorable march of time is so evident um, and Rose is just so obviously concerned about staying connected to Evangeline, no mm. matter how far away they are. You know, even when Evangeline is in Minnesota and Rose is in Egypt, she you can tell she's thinking every day, I got to write to Evangeline. And what I think she's doing when she writes those letters is saying, I'm still here and I still love you. Yeah. Because by that time, uh, Evangeline had married uh, a bishop, Episcopal Bishop of Minnesota, Henry Whipple. And... Um, so their relationship was kind of cooled, but Rose obviously was still in love with her. Um, and uh, yeah, just writing to her to keep the love alive. And how did you come to work on this project? You mentioned, you know, reading the letters at the Historical Society. When did you first come across them and what made you and Tilly decide to pursue this project? Well, I had known about them for a while because the originals of the letters are preserved by the Minnesota Historical Society, where I work. Um, so I had heard about them. I had heard about the unusual accession history, which in, we can talk about that more if you'd like, but um, it involves the fact that when the letters were accessioned in 1969, archivists were processing them and they found the letters from Rose Cleveland to Evangeline. They were sort of, they weren't really what was expected to, to be in those mm. papers. Um, and they were sort of a tangential part of them. So people read them and, and they had a meeting and they said, well, it appears that these letters show that there was a lesbian relationship between these two women. Um, I would not use that word to describe it. I think that's anachronistic, but they used that word. Um, and then they decided that, for, in their words, um, to avoid making the family the focus of titillation, they were going to remove the letters from Rose to Evangeline, put them in a box, seal it, close it to the public, and then review it again 10 years later, uh, which would have been, oh, in 1980, so about 10 years. Um, So I knew that story, and I knew that, you know, as an employee of MNHS, I wanted to um, 
get into that history and also undo it to a certain extent mm -hmm. um, by doing the opposite of sealing them, by collecting and annotating and publishing them. So that's what I've done. And um, of course, the love story really touched me personally. Um, and it also touched Tilly per uh, personally as well. Tilly, I should say, had been working on this much longer than I have. She's put years and years of your years and years of work into this. Um, and she had already transcribed most of the letters. Wow. Yeah. When I and I didn't know it. And what actually was was happening was without knowing about Tilly at all, I was going to the MNHS library and on the weekends and transcribing them on my own time. <laughs> Little did I know that uh, Tilly, you know, was a time zone away uh, and had already pretty much finished them all at that point. So it's what happened was hilariously enough. Uh, there was a Minipedia article that came in about Evangeline Whipple and I couldn't believe my eyes because I was like, who's doing Evangeline Whipple? Mm -hmm. And it was this woman named Tilly Lasky and I looked into it um, and I learned that she had been working on uh, Evangeline's history for years and, um, and then I said, you know, I think we should write a book. And I'm just so grateful that she didn't call me crazy and walk away because she she listened because we never met. And yeah. in fact, we didn't meet until much later. We worked on most of the book before we even met. But it was just like a I think it was a perfect match of editorial minds. We just really clicked and um, both cared so much about the story that it just turned out to be the perfect project for the two of us. Well, I'm, I'm so glad, too, because I mean, this I haven't read the, you know, cover to cover of the book, but I, you know, once I, I just picked it up and sort of started looking through and even just kind of dropping in at various points throughout the the relationship found, found it just totally fascinating. So I want to go back to something that you just said in your previous answer, which is that you, um, that originally the folks um, at the Historical Society described this as a lesbian relationship and that you would characterize it a little mm -hmm. differently. Will you tell us how you would describe it? Absolutely. Um, in general, I would call it a, a same-sex relationship mm -hmm. or just a love relationship. Uh, I don't think you need to do too much more than that. But yeah, as I was hinting at before, calling it lesbian or gay or homosexual um, and to a certain extent, queer is anachronistic because mm -hmm. in the 1890s, when they're falling in love and writing with each other, um, the concept of sexual orientation as a fixed internal identity hadn't seeped from the work of the sexologists, who are mostly medical people, into popular thinking. Ah. So Rose and Evangeline um, would, would probably find it ridiculous if they were described as lesbian or yeah. homosexual. I mean, it's possible they were aware of the word homosexual. I don't know if they were reading sexology or not, but this is just going on. And the 1890s are this great decade of, of change and of evolution and thinking about sexual orientation and actually inventing it because it did have to be invented. Um, so uh, I do think it's possible to label their relationship queer um, because, you know... Uh, Certain elements of it set them uh, in opposition to social norms. Yeah. And I think that's what queerness is really about. Um, and I think the letters are queer, but I don't want to label the women. There's sort of, you know, some anxiety that we could have about, well, was Evangeline bi? Was she uh, gay? But that those are the wrong questions to ask. Right, right. Um, because that's that's just... 
it's something we get preoccupied with now, I, I would say. Mm. Um, and it does a disservice to them when you really focus on that. Um, and instead, just I invite people to read the letters and, um, you know, feel the dynamic through the writing mm-hmm. because it's there. Um, oh, so one thing I meant to ask you about earlier that I forgot to was, could you say a little bit just about the role of letter writing generally during that time period? Um, because, I mean, I imagine, obviously, we're aware that people wrote letters a lot more than they used to, but, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that I necessarily thought very much about how much time in a day someone would spend on written correspondence. I mean, it seems like it really was like almost like a part-time job. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way to think about it. If we think about uh, the part-time jobness of social media today, it's a good analog to um, the jobness, I would say, of letter writing because Mm -hmm. people were writing letters all day. You woke up, you started writing your first letter and you would write letters uh, sometimes all day. I mean, there was a specific sort of letter writing block of time that a lot of people designated in their schedules. Um, yeah, it was nonstop. That was how people built relationships and also important for this story. That's how they kept them alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and did working on this book change the way that you think about how you correspond and connect with people in your own life? It does. Um, I actually had a period where I had some pen pals and I did a lot more letter writing in um, my early 20s. I did quite a bit. Um, I At one point I was separated from uh, my girlfriend, Anjanette, who's now my wife, um, when I was in graduate school and I wrote a lot of letters to her and I'm really glad I did that. Even though it was a painful situation, I, um, you know, got to maintain my connection through that but then after that after about I was after about 25 I really stopped doing that um I also stopped writing the email that had been sort of um doing the work of letters Mm -hmm. like the long and really thoughtful emails exactly you know they were more like creative writing exercises than anything else and the email I write now is very transactional um with a few exceptions. So to answer your question, yes, this has made me think about that. It's made me think about, you know, uh, what, if anything, we are losing um, when we stop writing letters. Um, I think email has a great potential to do the same things that letters do. But I, I guess I, I don't want to appear too nostalgic. I, letters aren't, you know, the, the magical preservation of the truth of the past by any means but um there was still such a tension to composition um and to uh introspection Mm. I don't think most emails are introspective (laughs) um and I also think of it from a historian's point of view because when historians of the future want to understand what it was like for people who lived in the early 21st century, they won't have letters to look at the way I had letters to look at to study the late Victorian Edwardian periods. Um, They'll have a lot of noise to cut through if they're trying to uh, analyze the digital footprint that we've left behind. And that's that's a good point because there is a certain amount of noise in um, Victorian letters. That's for sure. Um, 
But even the noise can be important evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's sort of the job of the historian to figure out what's noise and what's actually signal. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Well, is there... um, So thank you for telling us about Precious and Adored. Everyone should read it. Um, I'm excited to to dive into it more. And um, is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about yourself and um, your kind of what shaped your identity as a feminist and as a scholar and kind of... What brought you to the work of writing this book? Sure. Well, um, it's really about um, my experience as a younger person, as a youth, you might say, uh, um, and feeling really isolated in my queerness and um, not uh, having anyone in my high school being out. There were no out people with one like half exception. Um, which is ridiculous. It was a big high school. Wow. Yeah, I think it was it was between a thousand and fifteen hundred people. Um, so that, and then you know, showing up at Oberlin, where even the straight people are queer, <laughs> I like to say, <laughs> and uh, just realizing that I had lived without knowledge of any of this being possible. Mm. So a lot of what I like to do as a public historian is to keep on. Um, showing the world that that exists and also most important that it has existed in the past. Mm -hmm. It's been called different names. Um, It hasn't been supported by the same kind of epistemological foundation, right? That would like um, make it possible to have a concept like sexual orientation in the first place. Yeah. What was also important to me was, was just um, showing that despite, um, you know, changes in labeling, and epistemology there were always people of the same sex who loved each other um there was always gender diversity um you know uh transness is kind of a concept that you know has some chronological distortions attached to it but the there are so many people throughout history um whose experiences resonate with queer and trans people today and you really i think it's important for queer and trans people to you know, accept these people as their, um, uh, you know, ancestors really, or predecessors. Um, and there's a lot of strength to be gained from that. So, um, I think I I really strongly believe in searching out those people's stories and then telling them as much as possible, especially the repressed ones, um, like Evangelines and Roses. Um, and that's really a big part of what I want to do as a public historian. Well, thank you so. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that part of yourself. And thanks for your work, because I think it's just I mean, I agree with you. I think it's so um, it's so important to kind of contextualize where we are. And I also like what you said about thinking of folks in the past as being our ancestors, because then that also makes me think about, okay, well, what kind of ancestors am I going to be to people in the future? You know, that's great. And I that's. Layla Saad is the person who kind of turned me on to that idea. She Mm. has a podcast called The Good Ancestor Podcast, and her work is very much focused on that concept of of like looking to the past, but also looking to the future and seeing yourself as someone in the past. So I I think those are all really important ideas. So thanks so much. Of course. (laughs) 
we are going to talk about what made our feminist hearts sing <laughs> lately. Um, and I, I'm going to jump in first, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So on the topic of visibility and representation, I, you know, I work in communications and media, um, both in my work work and then also, um, with the podcast. And so searching for images is often part of my job Mm -hmm. and it's a challenging one because you can go really, really wrong with stock photography in particular. Um, especially when you are publishing on topics related to identity and intersectional identity. So I was really happy recently when Broadly, um, are you familiar with Broadly? I'm not. There, um, it's, I, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but I would say it's sort of like a media sub brand or kind of sub channel of vice. Okay. Vice, uh, news and, um, their content focuses on women um, gender nonconforming people, LGBTQ people. And so they, um, they recently released a collection of approximately uh, almost 200 stock photographs of trans and gender nonconforming models, which is, um, fantastic. Um, and so it makes sense that they would do this because of their, you know, what they published about. And they wrote a really honest story about, um, when essentially they had, run a story you know in broadly about tucking and Mm -hmm. then used a cisgender man in Mm. the story and Mm. the author of the story or to illustrate the story and then the author immediately wrote to them and was like what are you doing this is not okay (laughs) and they were like oh shit you know we just don't you know we don't have anything and so then Mm. that oh what a great story I think eventually kind of I don't think it was immediate but eventually led to their decision to to uh, create this collection. So what is even cooler is now that they're, that they have curated this collection. Well, actually it's all, all these photographs are taken by one photographer and I think it features about 15 different models. So it's limited, but my hope is that they'll grow it, um, over time and they have made them available to the public for free. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's huge. Um, not only for visibility for trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming people, but also for, um, you know, for people who work in media, you don't have to be writing a story about trans people to use a photograph of a trans person in your um, work. You know, if you're writing a story about students or you're writing a story about shopping or, you know, whatever, like trans people lead lives too. And why not um, feature photographs of them as a way to to heighten visibility? And so I think that that's really um, very interesting and valuable it's called the gender spectrum collection um which i know a lot of people don't necessarily see gender as belonging on a spectrum because Mm. it kind of arbitrarily anchors these two you know two genders as like the ends of the spectrum and and that that's um so i'm not in love with that name um but but i am in love with the collection i think it's great it's gorgeous (laughs) uh and i hope they keep adding to it adding people of different ages also and abilities especially so if you work in publishing or media check it out um gender spectrum spectrum collection on uh on vice great yeah i like that tip thank you absolutely um, so, uh, 
my thing that I wanted to talk about um, is a little more convoluted uh, because I was, you know, trying to come up with a really good example. And uh, the best example for me is, is coming from my personal life. Um, like I'm just continually inspired by the feminism of my wife and Jeanette and also my sibling Jay. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both really amazing people. Um, but I, I do have an anecdote uh, to just sort of represent, I think, um, how we can find feminism in our daily lives when we feel maybe isolated in a place like, say, an airport. Mm. I spent a lot of time in airports yesterday. Um, and on one flight, uh, there was a group of women who got on the plane. They had had some drinks. They were pretty loud. Um, and... I just wanted to sort of sit there and zone out, but I, I can't really do that. Something in my brain makes it hard to stop paying attention to speech. I'm just always like honed in on it. Um, so I just listened to their conversation and um, was sort of sliding towards being really judgmental about mm-hmm. them. And then um, they started doing this like group quiz where, uh, one woman would ask a question of her two friends and then she would answer herself. And one of the questions was, um, which Disney villain are you? So the first answer was Maleficent. Um, That's who I would have Yeah, okay. (laughs) And the second one was Cruella de Vil. Oh, that's a good one too. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then the third woman, the woman who I had been most judgmental about, said... I would be Prince Charming from Cinderella. And I was like, whoa, that's amazing. What's she going to say about that? And she said, I think he was a villain. Boys are stupid. (laughs) Now, uh, I I definitely don't mean to suggest that feminism is about thinking boys are stupid because it's not. Uh, Absolutely not. But um, I do think that it was a great moment where I saw this sort of transgressive feminist point of view shining through this conversation that I had dismissed as like anti-feminist and mm. you know not worth my time um and it was just such a great response I mean thinking of Prince Charming as a Disney villain that's so transgressive and unexpected I just loved it and it just sort of reminded me to um you know reserve judgment and to be compassionate as part of my feminist practice I uh I'm trying to remember. So it's, she said Sleeping Beauty. Was that the one? No, sorry. Cinderella. Did I say sli- Prince Charming is Cinderella? Cinderella. I may okay. have misspoken. No, 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 no. I, well, I was just trying to think about, because I do think that the prince in both Sleeping Beauty and Snow White are real rapey because yeah. they come mm-hmm. along and like start kissing a, like a unconscious person. Uh-huh. And sure. so, um, so yeah, like, I, and then I was, I don't even think I know the story of Cinderella well enough to know. Oh, well, he's kind of a non-character. Mm. He, he's, uh, I'm thinking in particular of the Disney animated movie. Um, that's Maybe he, that's why I can't even yeah, re- no, remember him. Yeah, no, he's completely unmemorable. There's no distinguishing characteristics of him at all. He's like an animated Ken doll. Uh. Um, he's, he's just like the prize for Cinderella to get. Um but it's true, like the quote, the the real quote unquote villains in that movie are the evil stepmother, yes. and evil stepsisters. Yes. Maleficent is also, I think, kind of an evil, witchy stepmothery character, if I remember correctly. Uh, in Sleeping Beauty, yeah, Sleeping Beauty, yeah. And then there's another, and then in 
And Cruella de- Yeah, yeah. These are all like all I didn't yeah. really think about that, but they're all um these like sort of witchy female villain characters. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot to be gained from reclaiming those characters because there's a huge popularity of Disney villains these days. They're mm. as popular as princesses. And I really like that. Um, my favorite being Ursula the Sea Witch oh, from The Little Mermaid. Who is basically divine. I yeah, think. no, yeah. absolutely. That <laughs> character is just based on divine. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I think that I I like the reclamation that's going on, but I also like this woman's idea that Prince Charming was a Disney villain. I also just appreciate the sort of everyday reminders to practice curiosity mm-hmm. over judgment. Mm-hmm. I think that is so hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do. Well, thank you for sharing that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had one other, one other thing I wanted to talk about, um, which is not, it basically just made my feminist heart sing because she's a queer woman of color who is making music. And I, every time I come across a new artist that I'm really excited about, then that is very, um, very heart singy to me. (laughs) Um, And also because I love spacey ambient music. I am a yoga teacher, so I listen to a lot of that kind of music. And um, so this woman's name is Rita R E E T A. And I, think her last name is pronounced Loy, L-O-I, and she goes by Loyal, L-O-I-A-L. And as I said, she is a, um, she's a queer British Indian woman who has been very involved in the art and LGBTQ community organizing scene, particularly in, in terms of securing space for queer South Asian people um, where she lives, but she's also an artist. So um, I read a, a an interview with her in Gal Dem magazine, which is a, a great magazine. Everyone should read it. Um, and they describe her music as combining everything from dance, jazz, soul, Indian classical and seventies mm. and eighties Hindi film music. So I re- I was like, okay, I have to listen to this. And um, I totally loved it. Um, she, she was also in a band called low freak, which I have not heard. Um, <laughs> That's but a great I, name. I love the name. Um, and I want to check that out too, but her solo album is called EK and her voice reminds me a little bit of totally different genre, but, um, are you familiar with Valerie June? She's a, I think Memphis based kind of roots singer. Um, she's a very unusual voice. Um, and where she's much more sort of folky bluesy Americana, um, uh, Loyal is much more, like I said, kind of synthy, electronica, kind of lots of samples, things like that. Um, and the song that she's getting the most attention for is called Too Late, which also has a gorgeous video, which I will also link on the website. Um, and in, in it, she kind of plays on the call response trope between which which is most often um, performed by men and women in songs. And in this song, she creates the call and response with herself by manipulating her voice at higher and lower registers. So it's really creative. It's really beautiful. The lyrics are very, very simple, but very poetic, very moving. And I just love her vibe. Um, so I'm always down to find new artists and um, definitely check her out. If you're kind of in a chill mood, her album is called EK. You can find it on Spotify um, or Apple Music. And she made my feminist heart sing 
lately and I think everybody would love her. All right, we're going to put you on the spot a little bit. That's fine. Do it. <laughs> With um so this season I've been asking the asking the dear feminist hot dog questions instead of answering <laughs> them and tailoring them to my guests. So the one that I wanted to ask you, dear feminist hot dog, <laughs> how do you grapple with um as a historian um with wanting to celebrate and learn from artists thinkers and historical figures when you know that they also held problematic views so i mean this can apply to modern people as well obviously um even in this day and age no one is ideologically pure um but i i understand want like I understand the urge to kind of want to, you know, quote unquote, cancel or just dismiss people when their behavior or their worldviews were harmful to people or when they upheld systems of oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also worry about missing out on learning from um, the innovation and the creativity that they contributed to the world within the context that they lived in. And so I guess my question is, is it wrong to still admire and be inspired by these folks, even as we acknowledge their shortcomings or is that basically being complicit in their you know homophobia white suppression etc and then the part of me is like am i am i being complicit by even asking that question you know like be, mm-hmm. e- like even entertaining the notion is that because of my lens of kind of coming from a place of privilege so i'm this is just something i've been thinking about a lot lately so i wanted to get your perspective on it yeah those are huge questions Um, and they're questions that I ask myself almost every day. Um, you know, in my work, uh, as an editor, as much as anything else, um, I've been doing a lot of research lately into, um, LGBTQIA plus, uh, history in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And there is this desire that a lot of people have, including me to find, you know, quote unquote, perfect examples, mean perfect meaning they had all the right attitudes, um, they they didn't really do anything wrong in their lives. Um, and I have been finding people who seem to fit that and then they say something racist and you're like, oh, why, why do you have to do that? Um, so I think it is important to continue to engage with these people and engage critically. Um, I think we can do that at the same time. I, I guess we meaning feminists, feminist critics and historians. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think as long as we don't, um, embrace as long as we don't forget about the responsibility to be critical um, and to also not be afraid to say you know what she was a woman of her time uh, but that doesn't make it okay I think there's a lot of explaining away of racism and, and homophobia um, by saying so and so was a period of her time that's just how everyone was um, but that doesn't make it any less wrong um, And I I went through that with uh, Rose Cleveland and Evangeline Whipple, too, because they a lot of the content of the letters is classist and racist for sure. So what I did was try to engage with that critically, write about it in the footnotes, not try to apologize for it um, or to somehow explain it away, Mm -hmm. but just to say, look, this is evidence of racism in the late Victorian Edwardian period. And I think that's really important. I actually want us to look harder at it rather than backing away mm. and say, like, what did the race and class privilege of this women enable them to do in their lives? How did it give them independence and wealth? Um, 
which in turn, you know, allowed them to create this collection of letters. Um, yeah, so it's just about, um, you know, embracing these these figures of the past um, as, as symbols of, of some good things, but then also engaging critically with um, their flaws. Well, I, I really appreciate that answer, and I think it also speaks to the... Um we're not doing anyone any favors by pretending that racism or sexism or homophobia or anti-Semitism or classism or ableism, <laughs> all the ism that they don't all exist the because the people who were living during that time were definitely aware of it. The mm-hmm. people who they were, um, they were share those identities now are aware that that, you know, it's not, we're not fooling anybody by pretending that that didn't happen. Um, but in its own, so I think where the harm comes in maybe is by celebrating those people, but not acknowledging their, um, not acknowledging their yeah. context and their behavior and their isms. Yeah, I think it's possible to criticize um, and to celebrate at the same time. You mm-hmm. have to do it really carefully and thoughtfully, but I think it's possible yeah. and even necessary. Let's induct some people into the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. Let's do it. Okay. I um, I learned about my Hot Dog Hall of Famer from a series that the New York Times has been doing called Overlooked, which is essentially... I've seen that, yeah. It's, it's cool. Good. Yeah, it's obituaries um, of people who should have been written about uh, when they died, um, but they weren't, usually because their identities weren't of much interest to the readership of the Times at the time. So... Um, my um, Hot Dog Hall of Fame inductee is Pandita Ramabai Saraswati. Mm. And I chose her in honor of our historical theme of Thank women you. who lived in the latter half of the 19th uh, century. So she was born in 1858 into a Brahmin family, which is the, um, I believe, the highest caste in Hindu tradition. And but she broke pretty much every rule that there was for women born into her circumstance. So she had a very unusual life from the beginning because her father actually taught her Sanskrit, which is a language typically reserved at the time only for Brahmin men. And she was able to parlay the skill into something of career of a career after she lost her parents Um her parents died in the famine um, when she was a teenager and she became um, she and her brother both became kind of known in academic circles for their mastery of holy books, which is very unusual for her as a, as a girl to um, to have to possess that knowledge. And so she um, eventually married a lawyer which, who was of a lower caste than she was, which was like big thing number two that women just did not women like her did not do at the time. Um, but he died just a few years later and left her a widow, which, um, with a, with a baby daughter, um, which was not a good thing in India at the time. I'm reading here an excerpt from the obituary in the times. Brahmin customs prohibited widows from remarrying, um, considered cursed. They were required to shave their heads, wear drab, coarse clothes and subsist on meager food. Widows were also subject to physical and sexual abuse. The common practice of child marriage also meant that some widows were still girls when they were doomed to a lifetime at the margins. 
So she really um, not only was in this circumstance, but objected to this circumstance as you know, kind of coming from the perspective of somebody who had more, I, I think, power and had been raised with a little more autonomy than than most at that time. So she rejected all of this and instead moved to a new city and started an organization called ARIA Women's Association, which promoted education and empowerment. She traveled to England and to the United States, and in her late 20s, she wrote a book called The High Caste Hindu Woman, and she was able to raise both money and consciousness about the experience of women in India all over the world. So she was good at generating support and fundraising and telling her story and the stories of other people at a time when it was un basically unheard of for a single mother to be out there pushing for social change like that without the support of um, of men behind her so one of her most famous quotes is the chief means of happiness is complete independence and she saw education as the way to achieve that so eventually she opened a home in Bombay for widows, um, girl, girls who are also widows, where they could learn skills and basically have a life. Um, and it evolved into a farm eventually, and it is still active, which kind of blows my mind. Um, it's amazing. She apparently identified deeply with uh, American Indians and also with Harriet Tubman, who she met in the United States um, and who she encouraged her daughter to emulate. Um, she eventually converted to Christianity, which angered a lot of her Indian supporters and ultimately left her a bit on the margins, especially since she was also so critical of the Hindu caste system and culture and so determined to reveal its horrors to the rest of the world um, or its inequities, I guess maybe is a better word than horrors. Um, the history books eventually forgot her but now we can really kind of marvel at her remarkable courage because she was such a um, she was just basically like somebody who, you know, kind of woke up and saw the world um, in a way that the world wasn't seeing itself and just held it to a higher standard with, you know, on entirely based on her own ability to kind of help other people see see her vision. So um, Pandit. Pandita Rambai Saraswati, welcome to the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. Oh, I can go now. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, the person I am uh, presenting for consideration of being inducted into the Feminist Hot Dog Hall of Fame uh, is Renee Vivian. I'm saying her uh, name with an extremely American accent, and I'm embracing it. Renee Vivian. <laughs> but she... Uh, really embraced France. That was a big part of her identity. Her uh, birth name was Pauline Mary Tarn, mm. and she was actually born in England. Um, I'll just say be, uh, generally what she did and go back to that. She was a poet. She uh, wrote in the French symbolist and surrealist traditions. She was also very interested um, in looking back at the work of Sappho, the ancient Greek lyric mm. poet. Um, so her her sort of professional contribution uh, as a feminist, um, is her body of work, her body of poetry. But I would also argue that, um, another of her contributions was her life because her life, um, was her art in a sort of Oscar Wilde sense. Um, she turned living into an art. Mm. Um, and so she, as I said, she was born in England in 1877 in London. Um, she had pretty wealthy parents. Um, she was uh, technically, 
at least one of her parents was American. She was sort of technically an American born in England who then spent most of her time in France. She did live in France up until the age of eight or nine, I think, when her father died. Then she had to move back to England. She hated that because she thought England was really emotionless and sterile compared to France. Um, And uh, so she did that. But then uh, she inherited her father's wealth. and, And at the age of 21, she could sort of live on her own. And she went to Paris, set up a household there, um, and just threw herself into the um, same-sex um, culture that was really just getting big uh, in Paris at mm. the time. Um, and in about 1900, maybe 1899, she met Natalie Barney. That might be a more familiar name for all of you. Um, she has sort of lasted longer in popular imagination, um, mostly for her love affairs because she was... Yeah, she had a lot of girlfriends. Oh my goodness, and a lot of drama. Mm. One of them was Louise Brooks. Uh, sorry, not Louise Brooks. Romaine Brooks. <laughs> I wish Louise Brooks. Uh, they were overlapping. No, Louise Brooks being the silent film star. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, also, sometimes rumored to be bisexual. Um, but in any case, uh, uh, Renee Vivian met. Natalie Barney, they fell in love. They had a wildly tempestuous relationship Mm -hmm. in Paris. Um, uh, Natalie Barney was really polyamorous and Renee was not. So they sort of broke up. Um, And uh, they did eventually get back together briefly. And they actually went to Lesbos in Greece Mm -hmm. to try to rekindle their relationship, which I think is just hilarious. (laughs) It's just so idealistic and amazing. Like, oh, we'll just go to the island of Lesbos in Greece where everything will be great. That'll make everything work out. Yeah, um, because they really did idealize Sappho and they loved her poetry. Mm. Um, So they did that, but, you know, surprise, didn't work. Uh, And then after that, they were completely broken up. But anyway... um, Renee Vivian continued to have an amazing life and amazing relationships. She had a long-term relationship with uh, a baroness who was one of the French Rothschilds. Oh, wow. Yes, she was very wealthy. Um, And they had a very passionate relationship. She was married, the the baroness was, and had two children. Um, And then while they were together, uh, Renee also had this erotic correspondence with a Turkish diplomat's wife, which is amazing because the wife um, was a practicing Muslim and she wore hijab. Mm. And meanwhile, she was having this love affair with <laughs> Renee Vivian. Um, anyway, I, I I mention all of these things to just sort of emphasize uh, how unconventional she was and how completely uh, unafraid to go against social norms she was. Um and I, I kind of live in fear that Hollywood's going to pick up on her and, and make all this into a movie with Keira Knightley. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, Renee Vivian was friends with Colette. Um, but, uh, you know, so far it hasn't happened. She's still under the radar. I think so. I think a, a Natalie Barney movie might show up with Renee Vivian as a minor character. But so far, so good. No Keira Knightley. Um, not that she hasn't done good work. I just wasn't... a impressed with her casting as Colette and the way they handled that story. Anyhow, back to Renee Vivian. She continued to write poetry, published lots of uh, collections of poetry, um, but then she started having health problems. Um, She was addicted to uh, a drug that she was taking for her health, 
Um, and she became an alcoholic. Mm. She also had problems with anorexia. Um, and I think in, in about 1908, she got pneumonia. Uh, and then uh, by the end of the next year, she had died in 1909 of pneumonia, but really complications also from anorexia and alcoholism. Yeah, her body probably was having a hard time. Yeah, and she was 32 years old when she died. Wow. She, she burned... Uh, Fast and bright. I would say so. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a, a, a area of Paris named after her. It's like the, the Place Vivienne or something like that. Um, so they really remember her in France, but in this country, not so much. Mm. Um, so there's a wonderful book about Natalie Barney um, uh, called Wild at Heart by Suzanne Rodriguez. And uh, there's some great details about Barney's relationship with Vivienne in there. Um, I really recommend it. Um, and it's just, it's just entertaining. You know, if you want like a, a queer historical true life romantic romp, this is your book. That sounds really fun. Actually, I would love to read a book like that and I would love to read some of her poetry too. Well, thank you so much, Vivian. Renee Vivian. Renee Vivian. It's it's the two first Two first name, name, or at least in America, they'd be both first names. Welcome to the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. Woohoo! And I'm so glad to know about her. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, Lizzie, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and be on the show today. This has been a very, I've learned a ton from oh, our conversation. You. And um, I just can't wait to finish reading your book. And, um, I just really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you taking the time to have me on. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. So don't forget to follow us, um, you you and the listeners, um, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and sign up for the Feminist Hot Dog Newsletter so you can stay up on all the latest hot dog news. Our music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music, and our audio editing is by Square Lightning Design. Thank you for listening. Love yourself. Love your buns. This has been a production of NOCO-FM.